we can get really tunnel vision about our approach and our beliefs are the right ones. And then we can just become completely tone deaf to any other approaches. And I I think having like a healthy amount of openness and curiosity and also tolerance to a certain extent is really a key ingredient to bringing more people to the table because we do need more people at this like metaphorical table of being concerned about what's going to happen to the planet. We love to be right. (laughs) So much so that we often trade being right for being in relationship. And without relationships, we cannot experience meaningful change because the change we desire is rooted in relationships, not the certainty of being right. (laughs) But dang, the expediency and certainty of being sure are seductive. Our love of certainty and being right protects, or at least tries to protect, from the discomfort of vulnerability. But instead, We worship certainty, which crushes innovation, while steamrolling the very people who can help us achieve our commitments to change. Pursuing being right cultivates that tunnel vision of perfectionism, which runs rampant over our curiosity and creativity, the very ingredients needed for us to have sustained impact. When you make a commitment to change, it is less about getting it right than it is about doing the work day in and day out toward a shared goal, learning from mistakes and the viewpoints of others. The falls and the failures are the data that guide us towards solutions instead of just band-aids and value humans and our planet while doing meaningful work. As soon as we focus more on being right or committed to one way of doing something, we move farther away from the actual change we are seeking. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. It is easy to overthink making an impact. We want to get it right from the start and fear making mistakes, or... We worry about sustaining the work we're already doing, so we don't even bother starting, counting ourselves out, believing our small actions don't make a difference. Oh, but they do. Climate solutions require collective action. Well, most solutions that are sustainable require collective action. Now, the leaders that are focused on just being right end up cultivating conflict and criticism. But leaders who are committed to relationships end up cultivating creativity and community and do so imperfectly while still leaving an important legacy. We can all start or continue our sustainability journey with this in mind. And my guest today leads many on the imperfect journey of sustainability. Ashley Piper is a political strategist turned vegan and eco-lifestyle expert and author of the best-selling and very funny book, Give a Shit, Do Good live better, save the planet. Her work has been featured in or on the Washington Post, Real Simple, BuzzFeed, Glamour, NBC, CBS, ABC, just to name a few. Now, listen to how both Ashley and I connected how our experiences working in politics have shaped how we engage with the changes we desire to see. Pay attention to Ashley's experience writing her book, getting rejected, and then giving it another try. 
Her experience reminds me so much of what Jennifer Confer shared in an earlier episode on her decision to run for office again after failing. It really is freeing to fail. And notice the journey Ashley went on in her own sustainability journey, changing, shifting, giving space for everyone to develop their own sustainability practice instead of staying in a dogmatic posture. Now, please welcome Ashley Piper to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Ashley, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I am too. We were talking before we started recording that we have a lot in common in our professional background working in the field of politics. And we're going to touch on some of that today. But I want to start by taking us back to your childhood home in Texas, where you had your first entrepreneurial experience selling homemade lip gloss as a kid. So I want you to walk us through what was going on in your life that led you to pilot this venture and also share with us how it was received. Well, firstly, I'd say that I had always been, I'm an only child. I had always been the kind of kid to dabble in my mom's like bathroom. Like she had a, you know, under her cabinet, all her makeup and stuff. And I would constantly go in there and mess around with crushing up eyeshadows, much to her chagrin and doing just a lot of stuff (laughs) that kind of, (laughs) that kind of messed with her harmony, I think. And um, so I was always creating like little concoctions. And at the time I had found a flyer about animal testing in my local grocery store in Plano, Texas, where I grew up. And I realized it was a PETA flyer actually from gosh, like I was, it was in the early nineties. And I realized like all of the lip glosses and the shampoos and the conditioners that I was using were all tested on animals. And I wasn't vegetarian or vegan or even raised in a particularly eco-conscious or nature forward home, but I had a lot of companion animals and I just, something about this issue really struck me. So I was like, oh, I need to make a lip gloss that's not tested on animals. Now at the time, you know, in my limited wisdom, I was basically just taking lip gloss I already had and like, you know, crushing it up and like mixing it together. So completely freaking unhygienic as well. Like don't do this, (laughs) you know? But I was selling it at my friend and I were making it and then we were like selling it at school. My friend was into art and stuff. She was kind of the Jane to my Daria and we, she made cool (laughs) labels and we would just go into school and like sell them for like five bucks or something like that. And so it was a very lemonade stand-esque kind of venture that lasted maybe only a week. But it was funny because like suddenly like a lot of the girls in school really wanted this lip gloss even though it was like a totally gnarly, homemade, like not hygienic thing. But at the time, the impetus was really good. I thought I was making something that was cruelty-free, even though the raw ingredients to make it like the other products were just products I already had at home. So, you know, don't. it's one of those like harrowing tales of childhood entrepreneurship. Like, don't do this as an adult. Don't do this as a child either. <laughs> but it was a fun experience. Yeah, it's like the idea that if it's homemade, it's better. But you're sure. like, oh, wait, what What you were? Yeah, and so it became the, the sought after product. What grade were you in when you had this venture? I think I was in maybe seventh grade. Okay, so probably old enough to like kind of know better. But, you know, we thought we thought it was really cool. And, you know, I think there were you know, we hadn't yet experienced like a global pandemic. So there wasn't a lot of this. There wasn't as much like germ concern, <laughs> clearly, because, you know, I was for a week was marketing a lip gloss that was definitely made from other lip glosses that I had. So 
<laughs> and it became the it lip gloss so, for a minute for a hot minute for a in minute. middle school boy everybody wanted that freaking lip gloss but you know right. No a, hot minute in middle, a hot minute in middle school goes a long way. Yep. <laughs> I'm parenting like a, a seventh grade girl. Thirties, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, maybe even now, even as we get older, a hot minute mm-hmm. goes a long way. I'm just curious though, too, for that 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 sense of wanting to do something that was more eco friendly or kind to animals. Why was this so countercultural at the time, and kind of in your community? I mean, nobody was really, I don't want to say nobody, but I certainly, nobody in my sphere and no one I was exposed to was really into animal rights. Uh, I mean, I grew up in a home where we, where we did always like adopt animals from shelters, like companion animals. And my mom is this really big hearted, soft hearted person who was kind of like the neighborhood animal rescuer. People would bring injured animals to our house. We had kind of a menagerie of animals at any given time. So there was that, but like, I didn't know anyone who really knew about animal testing and the only cosmetics at the time, you know, cause I was like a teenage girl. I was like really into cosmetics. The only cosmetics at the time that uh, were cruelty free or not tested on animals explicitly were like Bonnie Bell stuff, which mm. is the shit. Bonnie Bell is still really good lip smackers. Come on, you know? And then, <laughs> and then there was a cosmetics company called Jane, which I don't know if you remember Jane, but it was very much like yes. these little black plastic pots. And it was kind of, I think pretty ahead of its time. It was very much around being like cruelty free. Vegan wasn't really a thing then in personal care or grooming products. And it was very much about like letting, like enhancing your own natural kind of beauty. So it's definitely geared toward younger, more like consciously minded gals. I don't know if Jane still exists. I feel like everything from that time period has gotten a reboot now because all of the folks who are like in their late teens and early 20s are super into the stuff we used to wear and the stuff we used to use. And so... I don't know, maybe Jane Cosmetics is back. And if so, I need to get, I need to get on it. We got to Google that. <laughs> yeah, no, I just remember like those, I remember people passing around those little pots of lip gloss, yes. but I was like, I don't know. I didn't want to share mine. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to share. You're not, you're not a nasty <laughs> bastard like me who's not only sharing theirs. <laughs> I, you're making a new product out of like your old shit. That's me. I hope I can swear on here. I don't know. But like, yeah, that, yes. that was me. I had no qualms about that, apparently. So that's kind of embarrassing. I hope when people listen to this, they're not like, Jesus, Ashley Piper is nasty. But we were all kind <laughs> well, of nasty I, as kids, too. You know, we're all kind of grungier than we are well, as my adults, daughter, maybe. My, my daughter gets into my makeup and I'm like, mm-hmm. Hazel, I don't want that you know, please let's talk about where you're putting your fingers and my makeup and your face and my, you know, and she's just like, what? It looks good. You know, there's this little (laughs) bit of bliss there, but also, yeah, I just like you, you talked about disrupting your mom's harmony with her, her makeup. I'm like, oh, and I don't wear a lot of makeup. I've got a little bag, just a tiny little bag, but that's like my daughter beelines for it wherever I try and hide it. She finds it. (laughs) Well, I love Hazel. That's a great name. Oh, it means commander or commanding presence. And she living up to living that. Up to oh, <laughs> Ashley, you have no idea. And today, the recording of this today, she's 13 today. And she has oh, happy orchestrated. Birthday, oh, she'll be so stoked to hear that from you. Because we we're talking about this conversation, uh, because we talk about these issues in our house a lot. Yeah. I mean, my gosh, we've had a year of 
deep <laughs> reflection and then said, but we do talk sure. about it. And she, she actually got an award at her last school for out of the whole school for caring about sustainability and being oh. aware and all of that stuff. She would walk around and tell people what they needed to do better. <laughs> like, or you could show them, Hazel, we don't have to just tell them, but you could Love show that. them. <laughs> the, look at that commanding presence, Hazel. Well, happy birthday, Hazel. Sounds like a great gal. She is. She is. And I'm curious for you, when did you first start caring about sustainability and the impact of products you use, like the environment, the animal welfare, all the intersection of all that thing, those things? What was the inspiration behind this initial awakening for you? Yeah, I mean, I think I had mm, like little entry points to it. But then I I was so young, I would kind of it would peter out for me. But it really actually began to stick for me when I adopted my dog Banjo about 12, 12, 13 years ago. And I just started to see her and like every animal. And for a while, I had wanted to become vegetarian and vegan. And something about adopting her just really made that stick for me as a lifestyle change. And veganism, I think, was kind of my gateway drug into broader sustainability, mm. because I just started to see so many intersections of how, you know, eating more plant-based or being more vegan was actually helpful in other ways to other kind of other social justice issues that I was I was concerned about. So everything from human rights and resource inequity, you know, I just, I started to see how like the way I was choosing to live and some of the changes I was making was also positively, hopefully impacting other things I cared about. So that just bled into me becoming really interested in my general footprint and you know, what was going on in, in the world and, and overconsumption and minimalism, you know, kind of all of these issues that I consider to be like sub issues of sustainability or sub movements within the broader sustainability umbrella. So yeah, it kind of it started with that being vegan was my gateway drug. <laughs> Adopting my dog and being vegan was my gateway drug. But what does that mean for you to be vegan? Because I know, I mean, I live in Southern California. I'm from the Midwest. Yep. And even saying vegan in some circles is like asking for a fight. Sure. It's become a very polarizing thing in some circles. But I know it's, it, it, it is, is deep. It, it runs deep for people. So for you, what does that mean to be vegan? Yeah, and I get that, you know, having been vegan now for... 11 years. It definitely was not something that was as popular then as it is now or as well known or well understood. And there are certainly shades of it. So for me, I, I became vegan for animal rights reasons purely. I'm not, I'm still to this day, not like a health purist or a health vegan, you know, of which I know there are many people who kind of enter yep. that. And, and for me, it's a lifestyle as well. But I also would say like, so I guess I would call myself an ethical vegan, which is a kind of a term to say, like, it's not just how I eat, it's in other aspects of how I live. But I have eased up my, my veganism has evolved over time. So I used to be very like, anti leather, anti any kind of animal materials. And now I, you know, I buy secondhand leather, I buy secondhand wool, I do that because I live in Chicago, it's very cold here, you know, so I've kind of as my sustainability rubric has changed, and my value systems have changed there. My veganism has become, I think, more flexible, not necessarily like I'm deviating from the values of it so much. But I've just I've been with it for so long that I'm pretty comfortable in it. And I'm okay with 
you know, having some modifications that I've made over time. I've also changed attitudinally. Like I used to be, I mean, I always say there's nothing more insufferable than a baby vegan. And that is true. <laughs> like, like, you know, when I was new to veganism, boy, I was like so awful. I mean, I just, because you're, you know, you're discovering this thing that you feel is so right and such a, uh, you feel is so strongly as a solution to a lot of ills. And so you just don't understand why other people aren't like, yeah, let's do it, you know? And so I had a real, uh, I don't know, like a quarter life crisis or something where I just didn't feel like I fit in my old kind of group of people and friends, but didn't feel like I fit in the vegan community because they were so punk rock and activisty, and their job was to leaflet, you know, and I was like a political strategist. So I just didn't feel like I fit in the movement. And I also just became really insufferable to be around. I would be like, hey, want to come to my house and watch Earthlings? And it's like, fuck, nobody wants to do that. That's like that terrible idea, you know? So I was just so, <laughs> I was a really like militant, unwelcoming, judgmental vegan. And now I am not that at all. I'm like the opposite of that. I'm pretty chill in it. And so I think I've changed in that way as well. But you know, I totally accept like one, there are plenty of environmentalists who are not vegan, plant based, anything like that. I totally recognize that there are people who consider themselves vegan or plant based who might do that in diet only and for different reasons. So you know, it's part of that accepting and understanding that there are you know, a, a lot of different approaches and inroads into sustainability and into veganism as well, has I think made me mellow a little bit in my, and also made me uh, m mellow in like my public judgment or understanding of veganism, but also feel really comfortable in my own definition of it for myself. Gosh, I love that on so many levels. Uh, thank you on a <laughs> micro level, just understanding, because I, I think, think when people talk about health and veganism, it can be such a lightning rod term and to in my clinical background, I've worked a lot with people with food and body issues. And yes. sometimes we have to parse, you know, around values versus a way to really do harm to yourself. And and this is for you, it's an entry point of caring about your pup and animals around you. But you also, I think it's like growing up, whatever it is we're passionate about in our 20s. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I look to where I'm at. A, yes. got a big birthday coming up this summer <laughs> and far from my 20s. And and I really do appreciate this. That we, we change. And you, mm -hmm. what I heard you say, what I love is you, you still are true to your core values around these issues, but you've evolved in how you interact. You brought in flexibility without compromising what you believe but that's maturity. That's emotional <laughs> literacy. We that's hope, resilience. You know, it'd be, <laughs> some days I think I could use a lot more, but thank you for saying that. Well, me too. Me too. <laughs> we all could. Well, I mean, I, but I think it doesn't mean we lose our passion and feeling indignant about things, but we still recognize that we want to connect with people. It isn't about being right. And that's when kind of that becomes almost a religion, like a religion of rigidity of, you know, kind of cultish. And, and it's yes. not about relationship. It's not about change. It's about something else. And we all, I think, I, I just welcome to the, I, I think we find that in our twenties and some people sometimes they stay stuck there, Yeah, <laughs> you know, that intensity of, you know, all or nothing. And there isn't a forgiveness or space for people to evolve in our culture right now. Right. We are yeah. policing everyone. Well, you used to do this. I get this all the time on certain things I've said or done. I'm like, I learned and I changed. Yeah. And I'm like, they're like, 
but you said this. I'm like, yep. Or you believe this or you did this. I'm like, I did. And I got information. I collected data. I checked my values and I shifted. Well, doesn't yeah. that make you a hypocrite? And I'm like, no, that makes me a growing, learning adult. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's this interesting, we really don't have room, which that's why I love what you just walked us through is this evolution of growth and issues and things that we really, we care about. And for folks, I, I see this from even in my clinical space, but even in my leadership space, if we don't heal whatever those wounds are, sometimes we try and heal our pain through our activism. <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn't look good. That's not sustainable either. Yeah, you make so many wonderful and true points with all of that because I just I do really believe we're we're not these monolithic beings, you know, we don't walk no. a static path and if we were, that would be pretty boring, but it would also be I think not the point of life and um just like, you know, I used to be the furthest thing from a vegan and the furthest thing from an environmentalist. There are so many things ideologically that have changed for me. I mean, I grew up in a really conservative household. I grew up in Texas, you know, and that's not an excuse for me to necessarily bring some of those ideologies unchecked into my adulthood. But, you know, that is also a very formative kind of experience of where I came from. And a lot of people have those experiences and um, and can pivot completely do a total 180 on like their value systems and it's a very genuine change and it's a very lasting change and i think i always maybe your political experience as well and i'm sure your clinical experience has colored this for you but i feel like i'm always it's always interesting to me when people will for a politician for instance call up something that a politician did like 30 years yes. prior. And I'm like, well, people evolve just like society evolves, social phenomena, like create evolution. So, you know, of course, someone might have some belief 30 years ago that they absolutely don't resonate with, don't associate with anymore. In fact, they're the opposite of that. And I'm like, no one person is completely consistent from the time they are 15 to the time they're 60. And thank God for that, right? Because like, I don't want to be like, there's plenty of stuff that I did in my teens and my 20s, even my early 30s that now, as I'm approaching 40, I'm like, I don't, that, do, that doesn't feel like me. That's not who I am anymore. And I'm not saying like really, you know, wild or bad stuff, but just there are beliefs that like, you know, I don't at all hold anymore. And I feel the exact opposite about. And that's, I think the whole, like you said, the whole point of a life well lived is to be open to that kind of curiosity and change. And, um, and, you know, with sustainability, it's really interesting, as there's become a new kind of fresh crop of sustainability activists, most of whom are younger, and I, I really love to see it, because I think this is a movement that needs everyone. I also notice in that kind of uh, fresh crop of activists, there is a very quick to judge, quick to write off vibe, that if someone's not doing something that's exactly like this, they're not part of the solution. And, you know, I kind of just want to be like, whoa, hold up, like, we got to have it all hands on deck here, which means real inclusion means also creating a little space for everyone, even people who have dissenting opinions, even people who have different approaches. And, and sometimes I think, not just with younger folks, but you know, with older folks too, anybody, we, we can get really tunnel vision 
about our approach and our beliefs are the right ones. And then we can just become completely tone deaf to any other, you know, approaches. And I, I think having like a healthy amount of openness and curiosity and also tolerance to a certain extent is, is really a key ingredient to bringing more people to the table because we do need more people at this like metaphorical table of being concerned about what's going to happen to the planet. And we just can't do that if we're judging people automatically for stuff they did 20 years ago. Yeah, gosh, I have a couple follow-ups to that. So even just, so I I agree, we evolve and change. And I've seen that particularly you and I both have a a background in politics where people change their positions and not, Mm -hmm. not in the sense of, okay, I need to do this for votes and expediency, but they really, something happened, they evolved. And I, but I think there's exceptions to that too, is even Mm -hmm. if, you know, even though our brains aren't fully developed and stop growing till mid twenties, if we do harm to somebody, if we, I mean, I'm just thinking of just the, the Kavanaugh hearings and I'm like, they say he was just a kid. I'm like, no, you still have accountability and consequences. It matters around race matters around assault, those types of things. I think there's still, excuse me, absolute accountability, but when it comes to these ide- ideologies around, oh my gosh, I was passionate about this and now mm-hmm. I've evolved. <clears throat> we don't give a lot of grace. I do think as a place though, I, I do I do watch folks that are just on fire and tunnel vision and focused. I feel like there there's a place and a purpose. I mean, I, I think we need all of that to drive these issues. Yeah. And there's such a fear, I think, of compromise or of listening. But again, if we're not doing our own deeper work, that drive, that focus that goes unchecked, and then it starts to, to like, we're not safe unless we have everyone thinking the way we do. And we conflate those and, and then it gets dangerous. Maybe it's age, maybe we mellow with age. I don't know. I don't know if I've mellowed. <laughs> maybe some people would say I have one, but my, my husband probably would. Is. Yeah. <laughs> he gets the unedited unedited stuff in, in our conversations. But I do appreciate that, that we, we do need to give it because some people are afraid to change their minds these days, especially in this culture, or to ask the questions that might lead to does even by asking it, there's a their fear of being misunderstood, afraid of being misunderstood. So yeah. I really appreciate this conversation. It's a great segue even to, to shift to your background. We touched on this a little bit. You have a substantial background in political communications. I studied mm-hmm. public relations and really focused on political communications myself and my undergrad work and ended up working in DC. And I know you've worked on some different campaigns and with different candidates. Can you walk us through how you made the shift from political consultant with a side hustle writing about sustainability to developing as a sustainability expert. So, you know, I want to note also, it was more of in a way like an ideological shift than necessarily a business shift. Like what I do Ah. on sustainability wise is very much still a side hustle, although like has the work of a full-time job, but I have a whole other full-time job and have this entire time. So I think there's sometimes like, not that you're saying this, but sometimes people be like, oh, you get paid to do TV. Oh, you get paid for that. And I'm like, I don't get paid to do that stuff. Like I'm actually, when I'm not doing this stuff, I am working full-time at like a fortune 50 company doing something that is not related to sustainability. And I, I think it's important to kind of say that because the the journey, what people see, like the background of that is totally different sometimes than what people assume it is. And so, you know, I I just always like to pull back the curtain and be like, no, I still work like a full-time job that, you know, I appreciate, but isn't, isn't related to sustainability at all. And I do that because I'm realistic about, you know, what I'm able to do at this point with 
you know, the kind of sustainability work that I want to do. I don't want to be a full-time influencer, you know, or anything like that feels pretty well covered to me. So yeah, so I'm still in flux. I'm still exploring what that looks like, but I feel like the journey to this has been ever evolving and, you know, has resulted in a book and a lot of TV appearances and a lot of other stuff. And, and it's been really fun. But what, what kind of happened for me is I just became so interested in veganism and then sustainability. And I was doing, so I used to work for both governors of Massachusetts at the time. So Mitt Romney and Deval Patrick, I was on both of their cabinets doing health and human services advising. So everything from, you know, universal health care to child welfare, public health, stuff like that. And that was actually my first job out of graduate school, where I studied evidence based social intervention. So a lot of like, how to quantify and use statistics to see if different kinds of interventions, different kinds of social work types of interventions are actually working. So really like evidence-based social work in a way. So I went to work for Romney, whom I wasn't um, politically affiliated with or even familiar with actually, and uh, started working with him on universal healthcare, which was really, you know, the springboard for Obamacare and like Massachusetts and as, as not progressive as Mitt Romney is now compared to kind of my own personal ideologies. Like at the time, being a Republican governor in Massachusetts, you're basically like a Democrat anywhere else. <laughs> so, And I really enjoyed working for him. I found he was a, a really nice and solid human being of actually all the politicians that I've worked with. I found him to be one of the most like kind of reliably stand up human beings that I had met who, at least in all my interactions with him in two years, treated everyone with respect and um, with great care. So I enjoyed that experience. It really shaped me in a lot of ways. And then went on to work with Deval Patrick, who was his successor and also a really great human being and kind of a nice experience to be working on a Republican cabinet and then on a Democrat cabinet and seeing how, seeing the differences between those two. Because when Deval Patrick came into office, those of us who are more progressive and were doing like social services stuff, we're like, whoo, it's open season on these policies. Let's get it, you know, like let's get, some more, let's get some more kind of just aid in place for these different, uh, these different kinds of public programs. But then I moved to Chicago. And well, I worked for a few different agencies as well. I worked for the Office of Early Education and Care. I worked for the Office of Victim Assistance. The governor kind of placed me different places as an assistant commissioner to repair some of these agencies that were in flux. And then I decided I wanted to do kind of the consulting thing do the outside in helping to fix government. So I went Mm -hmm. to Chicago, where I live now, and worked at a government consulting firm where I was a political strategist directing like their strategy practice, and worked for different agencies and on different campaigns and with different candidates helping to shape their messaging and, you know, strategies, uh, policies, things like that. So as I personally became interested in veganism and sustainability, I found that there was I felt like I was good at the work I was doing, but it was not for the candidates or for the types of Mm -hmm. types of mission driven things that I was interested in doing that work for. And when you're working at a consultancy, you don't really get to pick who your clients are. So I had clients who, you know, I was completely ideologically divergent with, who I still had to develop messaging campaigns for. And I was making a great living, but it felt very, you know, incongruent with where I wanted to go. So I made a plan, saved a little bit of money and uh, left my job and I didn't have another job lined up. Like I wouldn't recommend this, but this happened to be my journey. I didn't have another job lined up. I thought I would go and maybe work in lobbying for an animal rights or an environmental organization. 
dipped my toe in that water, did a ton of kind of research and informational interviews, found that wasn't necessarily for me. And I struggled for a full year to figure out who I was without this decade-long career I had cultivated, who I was without this salary that I got used to having, who I was and where I fit in this movement that I felt extremely passionate about, passionate enough to leave it all behind, basically, you know, but didn't feel like I fit because I was seen as like too corporate, kind of too, you know, buttoned up, whatever for it. So I, it was a really hard, but also a really formative year for me and time for me. And it, it changed me. And I, if I could go back in time, I would still do it. But it, in the moment, it felt extremely difficult to be so direction filled for, you know, a good portion of my life, and then to completely be like rudderless, like, where am I going? And it was during that time that I, you know, financially struggled a lot and was pretty by any standard, like poor. And it was a, also a really good juxtaposition between the life I had been living before and and becoming more resourceful, becoming more acquainted with my resourcefulness just as, you know, a young woman. And so a lot of the strategies that are considered sustainable, I was doing, well, because they were sustainable, but also out of financial necessity. So, you know, shopping secondhand really blossomed for me because that was really the only way I could afford stuff. Eating plant-based and eating in bulk was really one of the only ways I could afford stuff. So I lived those I lived those habits basically. And I found that they worked for me and I still brought them through with me, even in kind of my more uh, financially prosperous and plentiful life as I kind of started to find more of a direction. But, you know, I, at the time there was no one who was really doing stuff on TV around sustainability. And I, I kind of wondered why, like, I felt like this was something that was going to be important. And I also having the experience with my family being so skeptical about climate change and sustainability generally, like I felt like, gosh, you know, if it could just be made easier for people and if we could show it to be simple and joyful and stylish and fun and economical, maybe, and take a lot of like the research component and demystify it for folks, I think more people would do some of these smaller steps. And so that's what really drove me. So I started, you know, seeing if I could write pro bono for people's blogs and then started writing pro bono for, you know, different media outlets. And then I started hounding producers on Twitter, which I don't recommend you do, but I didn't have contacts in these worlds at all. And I, what I really had was just this spirit of like, shit, I've got nothing to lose because I already gave up all the things that were really secure in my life. And so I think that's kind of a gift in a way, because I was so like, Hey, I'll try anything. If I fail at this big whoop, you know, and, um, and I was also so committed to, I did not want to go back to doing political strategy. I didn't want to try this, whatever this was, and then go back with my tail between my legs and be like, okay, I'll do this job again that I did, that I left, you know, that I took great pains to leave. So that's really kind of how it started. I wish I had a more like rags to riches story that kind of goes with it, but this is, that's the real that's the real story of it. It's and scrappy. It's scrappy. It's it scrappy is. and real <laughs> and <It's> true. Real. <laughs> so, you know, what struck me in listening to you talk about that, the time when you've left political consulting, you know, you weren't comfortable. You, and, and I'm realizing because of your financial constraints, because as this season got longer than you had anticipated of being without steady work. And I just realized that comfort 
then kind of fosters convenience Mm -hmm. and how those two are so and how can then convenience is the in many ways, the antithesis, so we think, of sustainability or contributes to where we're at in our world today and where our planet is struggling and so many of us in it, that this convenience and we want easy. Yeah. It's almost this God we worship with a a lower G, lowercase G of, you know, because we we are so exhausted. We are so overcommitted. We are so burned with so much, even emotionally and relationally, then they're like, okay, really, Ashley, you want me to to think about this too? Yep. Can I just survive? Thank you very much. And and I want to we'll get to this about your book because you do break it down in ways. And I've read a lot on this, and I've been I've been dabbling in it ever since I had kids, which is probably like a lot of parents. You you know you have kids, you start to think about things in ways that are sure. different than when it's just you. I, I just want to get this right though. So for you, I, and I'm not sure I'm clear. How come you chose to leave political consulting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm not clear on on your decision to like, I need to do something different. Can you unpack that briefly for us? Yeah, I just was, I like couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> like, uh, just so, <laughs> enough said, um, I gotcha. You know, so it felt like I get such that. a soul suck to me for like a year plus. <laughs> and I mean, really okay. like working with candidates, for instance, who I could say I felt like were actually really bad people. Oh, and yeah. having to every day. And also it was like the kind of job you never shut off from. Not like I've achieved some kind of mythic work-life balance or any of us have, but like it was the kind of job where like three in the morning, your phone is blowing up and you're, you know, in crisis oh, yes. mode and stuff. And so I was just the only thing in my life, aside from like family and friends and my dog, you know, the only thing in my life that was really lighting me up was like my own personal sustainability journey and discovering that because I made it one of joy. And so Got I would it. have that. And then every day I would just go to work and it just felt it, it felt like I was just working to maintain this salary that, you know, was really nice, but I was pretty unhappy. And I'm not saying this to be like, I don't have some kind of pie in the sky idea about what a job should be. You get paid to do it. If you can be surrounded by cool people or you care about the mission or it's enough to pay your bills. If you have like two of those, you're pretty flipping lucky. It's a job, you know? But I knew that for my like emotional and mental health and, you know, it just, I was, I was done there. It was time. I, I'm having memories too. When I transitioned, just memories hearing you talk, transition from working for uh, a member of the Senate to then working for an issue advocacy firm in New York City. Mm. And I, I didn't stay there long because of just what you're saying. Like, I still got to connect with it. Some of these things were interesting to me, but it was always about the revenue, you know, like, oh, you're working on a $20 million account. And I'm like, I don't feel like I want to brag about that, but I feel like I'm supposed to here in New right. York City. It was like, I just landed a $20 million. And I'm like, uh, versus, oh my gosh, we got to talk about this issue or we impacted this or we won this election. That it, it just was, it was about getting, and I, I get that, I got the business of it and it was mm-hmm. seductive, yep. but it was soul sucking too. It was yeah. very soul sucking. I get that for sure. So thanks for clarifying that. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I a hundred percent, feel you like I feel that sort of you know that feeling in your gut where you're like could I do this could I rock this yes but how long can I fake this for how long can I fake it yeah (laughs) and I think it's I also had told myself you know at the time I was like in my early the was I in my when I left political strategy I was in my early 30s and I felt like I don't have children 
I'm not married. There is, if I don't make this change to explore this other thing now, even though I don't know what this other thing looks like, I might not ever do this. Uh, like I could see myself staying in that job, being increasingly unhappy forever. And I, because I felt like I didn't have any, you know, people who were dependent on me financially to keep bringing in the bread or whatever, I was willing to risk my own comfort for potential future happiness and kind of more aligned values. Mm. And so that was, the, but I, that was a decision I labored over for a long time. And the guy I was dating at the time was incredibly supportive. <laughs> He's probably like, Ashley Piper is a crazy person, but it was a real transitional moment. But I just knew if I didn't leave, then I might not ever. That's just, that's kind of how I felt. It was sort of like, I got to jump from this boat. I just need to. Yeah. I, I'm so tracking with that. And then just, I want to make sure I get this right. You are, you had this season of wandering and wondering and exploring, mm -hmm. and it really teased up that what you, where you didn't want to work, even though making, making your passion for sustainability is not necessarily a full-time job. So you've got another job right now that you're mm -hmm. showing up at, you've got a roof over your head, you can travel and you yep. can still then have the flexibility to get the word out about these and, and contribute to the conversation on sustainability. Am I tracking this accurately? Yeah, I actually have like a director level career that, you know, I cultivate on the side, you know, or not on the side that is my like day job, basically. And you know, I'm to the point also to be fully transparent, where I'm not able like both, both things have become big enough that I'm not necessarily I'm gonna have to make some kind of decision at some point, but I'm also trying to, being a very type A person, take some of the pressure off of myself. You know, is it working? No, not at all. But at least, you know, I'm trying to flow with life a little bit better <laughs> and, and not feel like I squarely have to control everything. So, you Oof. know, I'm trying to, I'm trying yes. to chill on it, girl. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to just chill on it a little bit. You're at an interesting place then right now where you know, you've got one area of your life that's working and another area of your life that's working, but there, there's not enough hours in the day to do them both. You're at this interesting place where something's got to give. So I'm excited to see in the future how this unfurls for you. Probably more excited than you are because you're living it. Right <laughs> well, I think a lot of people feel like that, especially now during the, sure. with the pandemic. I mean, I just feel like it's easy to feel like nothing in our lives is working right now because it's just been such a, a strange uh, time. So thank you for saying that. That's very nice to hear that you are excited. I, you know, that's really nice. No, but it, it is. It's one of those places where it's going to get really uncomfortable mm -hmm. with a lot of things that you're good at and that you care about and something else good is going to come of that, but it's going to take another leap for you. And so it's, it's, I, I know there's going to be something really great on the other side and I'll be cheering you on in the in-between. Oh no God, doubt. I'm hugging think, you right now. You're such a sweetheart. <laughs> you are. Well, I think, but I work with a lot of leaders who are like anticipate this. They're like, oh gosh, I, I can't sustain as I'm at with all of these things. But if I give up one, I mean, then they start to run all the trap shoots and doesn't seem to fit and they don't know the future for sure. And so there's just going to be a point to go, okay, I've got to just 
make a decision, an informed decision and take that leap. And and it's not a fairy tale. It's not linear. Like you've already had round one of this. And so mm-hmm. your round two is going to come up, but you have more data, more experience and 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 a bigger platform in, in this. So, but I, I want to get into your book before I do, I'd love for it to hear how your previous work working in politics helps inform your work in the sustainability space. Yeah. I mean, we're, I think working in politics is extremely beneficial for anyone. (laughs) I think there are so many things that you're exposed to when you work in politics or even in public policy that, you know, you don't get exposed to as much as in other areas. And I've worked in, you know, corporations, startups, nonprofits, governments, you know, and I feel like being in politics is a very unique kind of community and a unique universe and a unique experience. I think being in politics, uh, you know, at the beginning of my career made me not impervious to like misogyny or anything like that, but definitely made me more exposed to something that very much is still an old boys club and made me realize that I actually have a lot of things at my disposal and I'm not talking about like sexy things or anything like that, but I have tools in my toolbox that help me to navigate in a world of people who don't think like I do. They don't come from the same kinds of backgrounds and they don't share the same values or beliefs that I do. Like I think actually working in politics has helped me to feel confident going into almost any kind of interpersonal or social situation and being able to navigate it and being able to at least maybe not make inroads with people, but you know, still have a good conversation with someone. And so I think that's really important. That's like a skill set that again, I think with with where culture is going as well, with we were talking about kind of grace and stuff, being able to have a conversation with someone where you're not just tolerating them, but you're actually really hearing them is yes. a lost art in a way. And I think it is a really key ingredient in bringing people to the table around sustainability or around any other kind of issue. And so, you know, that was something that early on, I think a political exposure really helped me with that. It also helped me to see that like stuff doesn't happen overnight. You know, activism is beautiful and it's important. And I think sometimes activists lose sight of the fact that like, changing something politically, and I say this as someone who worked on universal health care, moving from a private payer system to one that is more socialized medicine, it is not like flipping on a light switch. It's like turning a freaking, you know, like cruise ship around. Like It is very, it takes a long time to dismantle things that are kind of institutionalized, that are systemically established. And so that's not to say we shouldn't take really proactive steps to do that. But we also need to be realistic about how long it takes. So even some of the most progressive politicians, you know, people will get very disenchanted with them and be like, it's not happening fast enough. And it's like, y'all know how the Senate works. Like, I mean, it like it takes a while (laughs) to get shit done. Is that the way the system should be? No, it's not like, a you know, it's not an ideal situation. But, you know, I think people have this idea that like politics should be like a choose your own adventure game or something like you should get the exact thing you want from the candidate. And that person exactly resonates with your entire individual value system. And that's not how life works. That's not how the world works. And doesn't mean we shouldn't be moving towards something that is more just overall. But I think, you know, having that understanding when I was young and kind of wide eyed and very idealistic 
was helpful for me to see how you can navigate that system to at least like expedite some kinds of positive changes and also how to liaise with the right people so that you can make those changes. So yeah, I think politics taught me a lot about the world and just about human nature and you know about the system itself, but also about how to bring people kind of into the fold and make them feel listened to and, and welcomed. Yeah. I, I mean, I was fortunate. I, I really credit my time in DC that taught me a lot of those lessons, even though I think my hubris and spiciness overrode those important <laughs> lessons and maybe still do. You in certain- mm. Oh, the red hair gets <laughs> redder at times. I love but, it. No, I mean, I've, I remember seeing my old boss, you know, he was, they were debating something so fiercely on the floor and I'm like, they're the enemy and we kicked his butt and he got, and then I saw them like laughing it up and like making plans for dinner or getting together on the weekend. And I'm like, how can you, he's like, what do you mean? We're debating the issue. Our kids went to school together. He's a good guy. I'm like, but he believes this and he votes for this. And this is the antithesis of what you stand against. He's like, yeah, and we'll work it out. And and it was just, and there was a moment after moment of that. And I'd see like, you know, in the elevator conversations or working with the staff of other members of Congress who I was like, oh, you're the enemy. And I get this, like, if I associate with anyone who thinks differently, then I am a hypocrite. Kind of something about yeah. that had got in my belief system early on. And then started realizing these are human beings. And I started to recognize like the quality of staff. Like I could tell the kind of leader a member of Congress was based on the interactions I had with their staff. And I found often that some of the members of Congress who I was so, gosh, just so on the other side of viewpoints, opposing viewpoints, but they were good people. I could just tell again how, and I noticed what working from the White House all the way down to local governments. And it was something I've really taken away that, you know, that there's this, you can't, we have to all be in this echo chamber and you can't associate with the enemy. And we look at where that's at right now and it's, it is d- destroying mm-hmm. so much. And we're, we're holding on to, to fighting for democracy and fighting for families and fighting for navigating community. There's a lot at stake. And so I do appreciate that. And there's such still a pull, like, why are you talking to them and those mm-hmm. people? And so I try to intentionally be in situations, even though I confess after this last year, <laughs> I told my husband, I said, I don't want to, but I try and be around folks who have different ways of seeing and doing life. Cause I, I feel energized by that. Yeah. But after this last year, I'm, I'm a little tired. <laughs> so it's I was like, okay, my friend, you are I'm a little tired. Tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, tired for the nuance. I'm like, like sometimes I'm like, I, did you check your source on that issue? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Do, I don't want to be nice to you right now, but yeah. I know I need to be, <laughs> you know, I want to just go idiot and say those things in my head. And then I'm like, no, that's not who I want to be. Right. But it's just, it feels even more exhausting than it was back in the nineties working in DC to sit with hold space for that. These days, it just is, I guess, cause I feel like the stakes are higher. I, I, I'm in a different season of life, but yeah. also it feels more serious. It feels a lot more serious. I appreciate you kind of walking through how your experience working in politics serves you. And and honestly, I believe everyone, I, I say this to my kids, I said, I want you to do an internship in DC at minimum. And I want you to live abroad if you can at minimum with so the yeah. chance of living abroad, seeing our country from the outside in. Those are big values that have shaped, shaped who I am and how I see and 
to the world, how I parent so much. And so I want to shift now to talking about your book. And I get to swear. <laughs> I get to Yay. swear because it's called Give a, Give a Shit, Do Good, Live Better, Save the Planet. So um, it is funny. I was telling you this. It is funny. And it's so smart. And I was just so sucked in with your storytelling and, and having been on this journey of look, dabbling in and out with sustainability and trying to do the things and not just on a micro level, but to have someone that actually on a, as our family can make a bigger impact. I wish I had your book when I was starting this journey. The original intent of this book and how it shifted after the results of the 2016 election came in. And so I'd love for you to share about that. Like, what were the stakes if you didn't shift how you wrote your book or how did you see those stakes shift? Yeah, I had, so I, I had secured a literary agent back in, gosh, like 2014 or something. And at the time I wanted to write a book around stylish vegan living. So with a focus on sustainability, but definitely more focused on vegan kind of ethical veganism. And we went to publishers with the proposal and had it all fleshed out. And at the time, there was a publisher, actually, there was an editor at Simon & Schuster who was interested in the book. And she was like, when we had our call, because when you go through kind of the book process, you know, you have editors, you know, like, it's kind of like dating in a way. And we were having our first chat. And this editor was like, you know, as I was reading this, I just feel like it should be called like, give a shit or something, because that's what it made me want to do. And that kind of stuck with me. And then it came time for these various editors and publishers to bid on the book. And this was at this point in like 2015. And there's like a day set and, you know, a time set when they're all supposed to have their bids in. And my agent called me and she was like, I got bad news. Like nobody bid on it. And I was like, what? Like I was devastated because I just had really gassed myself up for this is it. Like I'm going to write this book, you know, this is all going to happen. And I, I talk about this a lot in podcasts when people ask about kind of the book writing process, because I think people have this misconception, not you, but like some people have this misconception that like you're on Instagram and a publisher finds you and says, you, I want you to write a book. And it's <laughs> like, not like that at all. It actually can be really challenging in a way, you know, nobody comes out of the womb knowing how the publishing world works. And so even if you have an agent who's great, like mine, you're still sort of like, this stuff can happen. So I was pretty devastated. It turned out that particular editor at Simon & Schuster had accepted a different job right around the same time the bid was happening. And she ended up moving out of publishing totally. Otherwise, she would have bid on the book. So I took some time with like my tail between my legs a little bit and felt really, you know, just was feeling my feelings. And I really wondered, like, should I be even trying to do this? Like, should I be doing sustainability stuff at all? It doesn't seem to be sticking, you know, this is, you know, how like you have one setback and it can really feel monumental and you just like take a pause. So I basically took a pause for that whole summer and just, you know, enjoyed myself, like didn't put these pressures of having to secure TV segments and write for different outlets. I just did my job, my day job and, you know, partied with friends and enjoyed myself. And I think that was actually helpful. And then the election happened and Trump was elected and I was very, actively not into that result, you know, what I'm saying <laughs> felt pretty downtrodden by that and pretty energized, actually, like activism wise, and was going to a lot of peaceful protests and things like the Women's March, all that stuff. 
And my, my agent wrote me and she was like, listen, I know that it felt like a big setback, but I think, I think now is really the time. Like, I think having a climate change denying president in office, like this is now more than ever when people need to feel kind of reinvigorated with some hope about their personal decisions. And so I took a little bit to think about it. And then I was like, yeah, why not? So we retooled the proposal entirely to have the book really focus on sustainability. Because I, I do feel veganism can be polarizing. It can feel exclusive and exclusionary, you know, and I didn't want, but I definitely have veganism factor prominently as uh, something people can embrace in whatever degree they desire in the book, because it is still a solution and, or a strategy, I should say. And yeah, we did the same process over again, and it was received wildly differently. I don't know if it was because the zeitgeist of Trump being in office had really kind of energized people to care more about sustainability. I don't know if it was because of the different changes we made to the proposal. I don't know if it was because it felt less high stakes to me because I had already failed before. You know, so I was kind of like, eh, what's, you know, what the fuck? It's fine if it's, if I could fail again. And so it ended up being awesome. And we had multiple publishers interested. And I, I remember the publisher I went with was Hachette, like Running Press. And the first call I had with them, the editor, my editor, Jess, was like, Ashley Piper, I'm so ready to give a shit. And I just thought like, you know, when you go on a date and you're like, this this could be something great. That's exactly how I felt. So we actually, I wrote the book um, in kind of a breakneck pace because I did want it to come out, not at a specific like holiday or earth month or any of that stuff, but I did want it to come out at a time where people who were feeling pretty apathetic about the political climate in the US could pick it up and be like, okay, here are some things I can do. Could actually feel like it was fun and, and, and actionable. And through that, feel a little bit more reinvigorated to take some positive steps. So that's kind of the trajectory of the book from, you know, from failure to here's the book, you know. <laughs> you know, I never tire of hearing those stories around, you know, failing, feeling the devastation of a failure. And then, you know, people could go like, I'm never trying again. I can't feel that feeling versus, well, I already crashed and burned. I will give it a shot. We'll see. And, and it feeling different in the round two, three, four, whatever it may be. And yeah. just redefining your relationship with failure after just that first kind of, you know, heartbreak, that rejection. <laughs> and yeah. so thank you for sharing that. I think that's something that a lot of people will relate to there at the beginning of your book, you write, you write, and this is why I'm here writing this book, not just because I believe that everyone is capable of making small shifts that can encourage powerful change, but also because much of the guidance out there can be so darn preachy, crunchy as hell. And as a way in a way that scares people, even me straight up judgmental, or simply not relatable. Not all of us have 10 hours to mill their own flour. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I was laughing out loud reading that my husband's like, what, you know, what are you laughing at? Because I was reading your book prepping for this. And I shared him with that quote. He's like, well, you were trying to mill your own flour. I'm like, I know, <laughs> while I was working full time and a newborn on my hip. And I was like, I can't do it all. Yeah. And there was this element of even feeling not enough, like a shame. And I'm like, there was a part of me that was like, well, I'm going to one up you, I will do it. And then I was like, I can't, I'm tired. I'm yeah. really, really tired. What are some examples from your perspective on the guidance that you saw out there that around sustainability that felt particularly preachy, crunchy or judgy again, from your lens? 
I mean, I think just judgy from the standpoint of the same thing we were talking about, like a complete lack of like social grace around, you know, not all of us were raised by hippies who cared about this stuff. So just by virtue of that, not all of us grew up caring about this stuff. It might be newer to us or uncharted territory for us as adults. And I think that's okay. So there's some element of that. I, you know, I feel like a lot of the, and this isn't to shade any of the books out there, the guidance out there, because there are a lot of really good guides and to different aspects of sustainability. We had zero waste or vegan cooking or gardening or, you know, minimalism. There are a lot of good guides to that kind of stuff. You know, I, I felt like the, like, for instance, bulk shopping, right? It is and buying package free. Super awesome. If you live near something like that, if you don't, it's really difficult. And I think it's, it's wonderful as a suggestion. I certainly suggest it and, and try to do it as much as possible. But we've even seen like with the pandemic, right? Like forget about it. Like places in Chicago, at least where you can do a lot of that stuff, largely won't let you bring your own stuff, which defeats the purpose. They won't let you, or a lot of them have been closed. And so while we're seeing more and more kinds of places where you can refill things or, you know, the farmer's markets are reopening, that's not how it is everywhere. And that wasn't how it was everywhere, even before the pandemic. So, you know, kind of having that, like, here's my fridge picture, my pantry picture, and it's all things beautifully in glass. And it's very purist. Well, you know, that's beautiful. And that is inspiring. But that is not something that I do. I mean, you look at my fridge, there are some things that are in plastic, you know, there are some things that are in glass, it's like, whatever. And, you know, I think, we see a lot of that with like people who have the trash jar and that's kind of gotten overly villainized. I think I know like Bia and Lauren Singer and they're really nice people who are doing good things in the world. They also happen to be like aspirationally collecting five or seven years of trash in one Mason jar. I wish I could do that. Like that's just, (laughs) I've tried it. I'm shit at that. I can't do it. I create more (laughs) trash than that. And that's just the truth. And so, you know, I think people see examples and they think, well, I can't do that. So I shouldn't even try. And I hate that. I hate that, like, that that's the residual kind of impact that, you know, what's supposed to be inspiring is actually having on some people and it makes them think like they can't measure up. So why even bother? So, you know, I wanted to show some imperfect sustainability. I also wanted to show a lot of different strategies, because I really do believe it's not a one size fits all thing. What works for you isn't going to work for me and vice versa. Uh, So I wanted to show a lot of different options for people so that no matter their lifestyle, their income, where they live, what they're aiming to do, they can find strategies and, you know, a combination of strategies that work for them. Because there are, are sustainable strategies that I have tried, and they don't work for me. And after years of trying them, I kind of decided like, is it worth my energy to keep trying this one thing? Or is it better to, you know, try something else? Like for instance, you know, eco-friendly deodorant, like, like, you know, natural deodorant or whatever. It's a small thing, but I tried for freaking (laughs) like 10 years to make that work for me, you know, and it just like simply never did. And I just kind of realized like, it's okay to have like a few aspects of your life that aren't completely sustainable. That's all right. Okay. 
you are talking about real stuff here when you're talking about trying to find um, an <laughs> eco-friendly deodorant. My pits have been through hell and back on that mm -hmm. journey. And I'm sorry you all are listening to this, but TMI, holy cow. Mm -hmm. You know, so permission granted. So what I'm thinking is any any virtual stops really being virtuous if scarcity is driving it and perfectionism is driving it yeah. and fear is driving it. And and so it's trying and recognizing we really have a hard like there, but there is something about sustainability that does attract this kind of orthorexic perfectionistic yes. scarcity what a shame. Good way to it, say it. Yes. It's and and then that feels and then hijacks good people wanting to do good things and then it makes it exhausting and then starts to it, it, it's not good for our mental well-being. I appreciate you you talking about this accessibility, this flexibility. Um, and and I, I even hear a perfectionist part of me like, but that's cheating. If you're not all in, then you're not making a difference. Like I still have the echoes of that in me. And so I, I know other people do too. But I really encourage anyone listening to check out to check out your book because it, it actually gave me new ideas. It was an invitation. It, and I think that's what I feel like how your approach to sustainability I don't know how you see it, but I see it different than the conventional wisdom out there is it, it's approachable. It doesn't foster scarcity or shame or fear. And it actually gave me like tangible ideas that my whole family were like, oh, we can do that. It wasn't like what's mom want us to do now, Aww. but they're like, oh, that makes sense. And everyone was kind of drawn to different things at the end, like the last section of your book has different things. Everyone had something different. And I'm like, oh, wait, they can make their own decisions. I don't have to boss them around and tell them what to be sustainable about. That gave them this menu of just starting to care. And, and to start, so thank you for that. Is there anything else you would add to how your approach to sustainability is different than conventional wisdom? Well, firstly, thank you so much. Because when like just hearing that is so lovely to hear that that's how it landed for you. I really appreciate that. I, you know, I think as far as conventional sustainability goes, the, the one thing that I'm noticing lately that I, that kind of, I bristle against a little bit is this, you know, there's that stat about a handful of corporations are chiefly responsible for all of the harmful global emissions. Um, and that's an important stat. Uh, most of those companies are fossil fuel companies, some are sort of like big ag companies that are also intertwined with fossil fuels. But, yes. you know, people will throw this statistic out and they will throw it out in a way that almost makes it sound like we as individuals are absolved from taking any kind of individual sustainable action. And I hate that <laughs> personally, because I look at sustainability like I would, at, or I look at climate change, for instance, like I would at any other systemic issue as being something that requires a real complement of approaches on macro and on micro levels. And so, you know, I don't think that acknowledge, like, I think, yes, corporate regulation, yes, policy changes, yes, industrial, governmental, you know, changes, for sure. This is my macro hand. And then yes, like us making small, sustainable shifts in our own lives. And I believe that because I just feel like, we are these corporations, whether directly or indirectly, our consumption habits Ooh. are still are still creating the business, the profits that the demand. And so 
to just write something off as being like an industry problem, a government problem, a policy problem seems really, to be honest, like kind of immature to me. Like, it, like you're not, you don't actually have like a, a real view of how the world works. Like you can push for systemic change and, and also be changing yourself as well. And I, I look at that as, as anything like, you know, obviously this summer has especially brought the racial tensions and, and inequities in our country and in our world to the fore that have always been, you know, there. And I, I think systemic racism is a huge issue that needs a systemic solution. That doesn't absolve me from educating myself on how to be actively anti-racist, understanding the history and exper- lived experiences of BIPOC, like that doesn't change the responsibility I have as well to make proactive changes and productive changes to be, you know, just a better person while also I'm advocating for systemic changes as well. So, I, you know, I'm always just not necessarily to bring other big topics into it, but that's how I feel about like any kind of yes. thing. Maybe that's background in politics that's helped me to see how interconnected all those things are. But, you know, I never think, oh, it's this like it's just the corporation's problem. If you're buying something that's ever been made with fuel, if you're if you're driving a car, if you're taking a bus, all of it has some kind of indirect feeding back to those companies' profits and creating that demand for them. And so I I just want to I always want people to remember like they are individually powerful because in like all good activism starts at an individual level and then rolls up to the collective. So you know, I think when we lose sight of our individual kind of power, that's when we lose steam in this movement. And I know it can be hard not to feel apathetic or hopeless, but we really are extremely powerful and extremely can just make it positive changes when it's just us. I love it. I want to wrap up talking about this, the sustainability and leadership. And I'm curious from your perspective, what does a leader do and say who truly cares about sustainability in both action and words. Well, you know, I I think I could be a lot better at this. I don't necessarily think I'm a leader in sustainability, but you know, being understanding is I think a really key ingredient. It's an important ingredient. It kind of ties back to a lot of what we've talked about because you know, being understanding and being open to evolving and open to other viewpoints and hearing those and other strategies, I think is actually what makes anyone a good leader no matter what you're doing like like being a little less rigid Mm. even though I think rigidity a lot of times is kind of a a quality that's associated with like a good strong leader it's like an unflinching rigid leader I actually think being slightly like open to being malleable around some of these beliefs that I'm not like pearl clutching about you know some strongly held belief I'm open to data changing my mind, if it's compelling enough, I'm open to trying new strategies. I'm open to personally evolving as the world evolves and as the world's needs evolve, as this movement changes. And so I think being somewhat open and understanding and and being willing to listen and hear other things and try other things, like having that healthy curiosity is important. And showing people that like you have that, I think allows people to feel okay with being changeable, imperfect, failing, trying and failing things. It just creates that kind of humanness, that comfort level whereby people feel like, oh, okay, I can I can give this a whirl. Like I'm not going to get judged if I can't put all my trash in a jar or if I, you know, still eat a chicken breast or, you know, whatever. 
So what do you say to those who say sustainability practices are too expensive or too kind time consuming? I mean, I think that's also a matter of opinion. Statistically, it's it's not more expensive or more time consuming. I, I think what's expensive and what's time consuming, and we have hard data on this through the Department of Labor, is our current obsession in kind of Western and, and especially American consumer culture. That is what is extremely expensive and extremely time consuming. So I do, I do feel like wrangling our spending and having less stuff is just better for the environment, but better for our psyches, better for our wallets. You know, if we're talking about food, dried beans, legumes and rice are some of the cheapest foods on the planet. Does everyone have access to those? No. Are food deserts real? Absolutely. Do people have eating like disordered eating patterns that need to be, uh, you know, like attended to? Yes, absolutely. So it's not for everybody, but on face, like eating a whole foods plant-based diet is not, not more expensive than the standard American diet. If you're doing it in a way whereby you're getting like the dried kind of more pantry stable items and you're getting them unpackaged. No, that's simply not supported by a lot of the data. It's expensive if you're buying all the cool, like newfangled plant-based products that are out there. Sure. But even still buying an impossible burger is less nowadays than it is to buy like, you know, 90, 10 ground beef of the same weight. So I don't necessarily think that plant-based eating is has to be expensive. It's how you kind of approach it and also what you have access to. But living sustainably does not have to be expensive and does not have to take a lot of time. If anything, I feel like I've saved time because I simply don't do a lot of the things that I used to do when I wasn't living in this way. I don't shop as recreation. I don't, you know, buy, I don't have 70 different like cleaners for 70 different things in my home. You know, I don't have a ton of stuff that I have to clean all the time or tend to. And it's it's kind of freeing in a way. There is sort of a, there's an unburdening, if you will, to, to living in this way. So I found my personal journey has been one of joy and adventure and the exploration and myriad benefits to my health, my mental health, my relationships, my finances, like everything. So I wouldn't be espousing this as a lifestyle if I wasn't getting a lot of other benefits from it as well. This is such a fun conversation, Ashley. I feel like I could keep talking to you and I hope we do Same. stay connected. And this was really fun. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about uh, your work? My Instagram, I'm particularly active there. It's Ashley with two E's, Piper. And then my website is ashleypiper.com. So those are two places where people can find me. And your book, again, title, Give a Shit, which I like what I'm saying. It's like, it's the title. My daughter's like, can I say it? And I'm like, ah, <laughs> she was like all excited that I'm saying this time. Like, give a shit, do good, live better, save the planet, add it to your queue. It's definitely worth it. And even address how you how you printed that book till you printed that. A lot of sustainable practices in mind, which is cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Thank Ashley. You. I I'm really, really grateful to get to know you and appreciate your time today. This was a delight. And thank you so much for your leadership and these issues. It is making a difference. So thanks so much. Oh my gosh. Mwah. Right back at you. Thank you for a great time. When we overthink sustainability, we're usually letting perfectionism get the better of us. The fear of being misunderstood or criticized if we do something wrong is where perfectionism has a party. 
But when we focus more on creating change instead of criticizing ourselves or others, we are freed up to get creative about our sustainability practices and modeling this for others. Ashley taught us that key components of her approach to sustainability are grounded in accessibility, practicality, and relationship. She shared from her own lived experience how perfection can turn striving to make a positive impact into dogma and disconnection. Now, where do you want to grow your impact around sustainability issues? Where may perfectionism and fear of failure keep you from starting to live more sustainably? And what is your next best step to take as you seek to live more sustainably? The title of Ashley's book on sustainability, Give a Shit, Do Good, Live Better, Save the Planet, is more than a catchy title. It is a powerful call to action for all of us right now. Dare to care and dare to do the work to make sure perfectionism does not hijack your power to make important decisions and changes that are needed right now. Leading is hard. (laughs) Leading is also controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. You don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and your action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If it was meaningful to you, I'd be honored if you could help out the show and leave a review and share it with someone who you think may benefit from it. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.